0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. For through the Spirit, by faith, we we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you here this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It is a special day for our church, uh, but before we get to that, what I would like to do is look at these passages of Scripture with you from the book of Galatians this morning as really kind of a foundation for why it is that we uh, believe that we should have elders and deacons both uh, ministering in our midst, and so kind of as a ground and foundation for what we're going to do later in the service as we ordain these men uh, to office. This is a powerful letter uh, that Paul writes here to these Galatian Christians. Lots of great gospellicious stuff in it. Uh, that is a word, by the way, if you were wondering. Uh, but what I want to look at this morning is just these, just, just really looking at Paul twice here at the end says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision uncirc- count, and really kind of talk about that a little bit and what Paul's trying to get at there. And really, I want to just talk about these three things and they're the three points of the outline that I've given you. First we learn from just these brief little statements here from Paul what Christianity isn't. It isn't irreligion, and it isn't religion either. Secondly, we learn what it is. And thirdly, we learn what Christianity what Christians do. So what Christianity isn't, what Christianity is, and what Christianity does, and I'm making a case for word and deed ministry in the church, and therefore for the ministry of elders and deacons. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're here... You may be new to our church, my prayer has been all week that even though this is a little different, we're dressed up a little bit, we're not going through Luke as we've been doing for the last few months, uh, we've changed the course just a little bit, but I do think this can be very edifying for you, particularly, even if you're not a Christian, uh, to learn, because I mean, what, what is Christianity? What is the basic foundational truth that Christians claim, and what should Christians be known for? How are we working that out in our church? We don't do very many things really well, but I do think we do services like this well, so I hope today will be encouraging to you. Uh, It's kind of a little bit more formal, a little little bit more maybe heavy, uh, but there's some great things for us to learn, okay? So let's look at this passage here in in Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6 and ask this first question, what is Christianity isn't? Because it's the first thing we learn. We learn what it isn't, and it's this phrase, both in verse 6 of chapter 5 and verse 15 of chapter 6, Where Paul writes, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now what does that mean? And let's take them one at a time. And actually I want to take them in reverse order too. Okay, I want to talk about uncircumcision first. So look there with me. The Apostle Paul first says, and he would have us remember that Christianity isn't religion. He says uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. It isn't spiritually profitable. That's what that word means. It doesn't make you right with God. There's no power in it. And uncircumcision, for Paul here... Represents the paganism uh, that the people that he's writing to and people today in our culture uh, lived with the non-religious orientation to life, which comes in so many different shades and fashions—from outright atheism, or maybe you, you know you would say agnosticism—I don't really know what I believe, but I'm not, you know I'm just not sure. There's a lot of skepticism and doubt to a generic belief in God, but really, once you kind of cut through it, this is the majority of our culture underneath. That generic belief in God is a fundamental prevailing moral relativism to the person who comes to church regularly, but in reality their faith, what they do here, has very little to do or nothing to do with their everyday life. Then there is the more insidious form of irreligion that even happens inside the church with people who have been in the church for a long time that would say something like, well, you know, we believe in salvation by grace, but doesn't that, doesn't that mean I can live however I want to? I can do whatever I want, right? That Obedience is optional because of grace, but that isn't Christianity either. Paul says it doesn't count. There's no power in it. There's no dynamic of joy and peace and hope to be found in any of that. But look, notice. Paul says that circumcision doesn't count either. Neither uncirc- uncircumcision nor circumcision, and circumcision... Uh, represents the religious orientation that people live with. Specifically, these Jews, who in this letter Paul's writing about, who came into the Galatian church, who were threatening these new converts, uh, who were largely Gentiles, by making circumcision a condition of their salvation. Grace is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You've got to add circumcision to all of that. See, your religion says there are no rules. There are no moral absolutes. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Religion says you better obey the rules. You have to believe the right things. You have to behave the right way because only then will God love and accept you. But Paul says no. There's no spiritual power in license. But there's no spiritual power in legalism either. Robert Louis Stevenson uh, wrote a great uh, book that really captures what Paul's trying to say here. Think When he wrote this short little book you're probably familiar with, uh, the book Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and you know it 's the story of a scientist who realizes he has these two parts of him: uh, the, the basic, moral, good part of, of who he is, and then the kind of the more animalistic, uh, really sinful, and selfish part and He develops a serum that allows him to separate the two, so that he is either one or the other of them, so he becomes mr hyde he 's transformed when he drinks the serum into Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde was this monster of a person who was completely selfish. In the story he characterizes him, he says, his every act and every thought centered completely on himself. But you see, when when he was Dr. Jekyll, it was the opposite. Dr. Jekyll was a good person, a virtuous person. And So you see both these things playing out in this man's life at the same time. Hyde is so named by Stevenson because he remains hidden. We think in other words he's making a theological point that we think that we are you know that we're when we're being the most virtuous we may think that we you know have a fundamental virtue about us, but there's this selfish part that is really really hideous but it's really hidden it's underneath and so even in the moments when we're most virtuous, what really is happening is we are actually sometimes even the most selfish that even in the best of us that even in our very best efforts and good deeds, there is a deep reserve of selfishness that might be obscured by the good we're doing at the moment, see? But it's still there motivating us, even in the good we're doing. And it's the point he's trying to make, because in the story, as Jekyll begins to realize his capacity for evil, as it begins to make itself known through this counter-personality, Mr. Hyde, as he, as he begins to realize this, he decides to clamp down on his selfishness and pride. You might say his solution to this problem in his life is he gets religion, he solemnly resolves and promises uh, to not take the potion that changes him into Hyde anymore. He devotes himself to charity and to good works. He's trying to make atonement for all of the horrible, wicked things Edward Hyde was responsible for. And then one day, he's sitting on a bench, uh, as the story goes, in Regent Park in London. And he's thinking about all the good that he's been doing. And he starts to think about how much better a person he has become. And he sees people passing by, and he begins to uh, compare himself to these people... Uh, he's proud of his self-improvement. He starts to feel morally superior to everybody else around him, and he begins to compare his activity. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, and they're cruel and lazy and, and such things. And then what happens is as he's sitting there on the bench to his horror, as he puts it, these are his words, at the very moment of this vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and I was once more Edward Hyde. Now, what's the point? I think Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination, has summed it up well like this. He says, and this is in his book, Reason for God, he says, for the first time, Jekyll becomes Hyde involuntarily without the potion. But why? Like so many people, Jekyll knows he's a sinner, so he tries desperately to cover his sin with great piles of good works, and yet his efforts do not actually shrivel his pride and self-centeredness. They only aggravate it. They lead him to superiority, to self-righteousness, pride, and suddenly... Look, Jekyll becomes Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. In other words, religion, moralism, feeling morally superior to others because you get it and they don't, that can make you just as much a monster as anything else can. And the way it happens in your life is often you're going along just fine, and you think you're doing pretty good, and then all of a sudden, Wham! There's the monster. He came out of nowhere. And it's because we think, I'm, I'm doing good, but there's this selfishness that's driving us along. Whether it's irreligion or whether it's religion. And so we see that the Christianity is not either of those options. There's no power in either of them. It's not irreligion. It's not religion either. So Keller goes on to say, sin and evil our self-centeredness and pride. But there are two forms of this, he says. He says one form is being very, very bad and breaking all the rules. The other form is being very, very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. And the reason both irreligion and religion are not Christianity is that they both avoid what is central to the Christian gospel and what Paul goes after here. They try to avoid the cross. You see that? Paul goes on to talk about the cross. You see, irreligion says... There are no moral absolutes. There's no such thing as good and evil. You might be here and believe that. That's kind of the the thought of the age. That there's no such thing as good and evil. There are are no moral absolutes, and therefore there's no need for the cross. The irreligious person fundamentally doesn't see himself as a sinner. There's no such thing in his mind as sin that makes him liable to God's wrath, and therefore he sees no need for Christ to die for sin. But... A religious person falls into the exact same trap. She believes, in the words of one of Flannery O'Connor's famous characters, she believes that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. And so she goes about her life to do just that. Both try desperately to avoid the cross, and that is why Christianity is not irreligion, of course not. But it's not religion either, it's something else. Paul writes here in chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the heart of Christian faith, the heart of the message of Christianity, the center of a Christian's identity and sense of self is this. It's the cross. And what's the lesson of the cross? I think if we were to sum it up, it would be something like this. It does not do to be irreligious because there is, and listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please, there is... An objective truth. There is a set of moral absolutes that whether we wish to or not, we must submit ourselves to. The Bible is God's self-revelation of about who he is, how he works, and the way we must relate to him. We can't just make it up for ourselves. It just, as much as our culture would love to buy into that fantasy, it doesn't work. It doesn't do to be religious either, though. Because as Paul says, verse 13 of chapter 6, Galatians, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. You see what he's saying? All of Dr. Jekyll's attempts at personal moral reformation didn't make him any less selfish. He succeeded in overcoming some of the gross external sins, but without his heart being changed, he was still proud. He was still self-righteous. He was still selfish. He was no less a monster as Dr. Jekyll than he was as Mr. Hyde. That's the point of the story. And so, to say there are no rules doesn't work. Because there are rules that cannot be broken, no matter how much we might will it so. But to say, follow the rules and you'll be saved, doesn't work either. Because we might be able to obey, do not murder, most of us at least. But what about everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment? What about do not be anxious? We need the cross. So you can't solve the problem of your sin by saying there's no such thing as sin. (laughs) But you can't solve the problem of your sin by saying I'm going to stop sinning. There's only one way to solve the problem of your sin. It's the cross where Jesus died as a sacrifice for sinners. In Galatians, Paul says there are two ways that you can react to the cross. Uh, And and they're found in in chapter 5 and then chapter 6. He says it can be either. And, And every single person in the room... No matter what your religious orientation is today, it's one of these two options: either the cross is an offense to you, or is it, a, bo- or, or it is a boast? It can either be an offense or a boast. So, if you look, if you have a Bible and you look in Galatians five, chapter chapter five, verse eleven, the apostle writes, "If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted?" In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And the Greek word there is scandalon, the scandalon of the cross, uh, the scandal of the cross. See both. Irreligious people and religious people are offended by the cross. The irreligious person is offended by the cross because the cross says self-expression and personal freedom and making it up as you go along can't save you. You're a sinner in God's sight. You're wrong. You've offended him. You need a savior. But the religious person is offended by the cross because the cross, here's what the cross says to religious people like most of us. The cross says, you know, you're, you're not like those irreligious people. Yet, despite all of your hard work, you're a sinner, you're wrong, you've offended him, you need a savior. You see, the Christian is the person who's had something happen in their life, who's experienced a radical transformation, and this is where the spiritual power that Paul says is missing in both of these comes from. The cross stops being an offense. What conversion to Christianity means is that the cross stops being an offense and it becomes a boast. Look at verse 14 again. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you love the cross. The cross says the same thing to you. You're a sinner, you're wrong, you need a savior. But... There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's there, nailed to the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And the Christian is the person who stopped trying to define themselves like the irreligious person does and who stopped trying to improve themselves like the religious person does and falls to the foot of the cross and says, have mercy upon me. And to boast on the cross means you do not have to be afraid of being a sinner. Because it's paid for in Christ. You can admit, you can confess your sins, not try to hide them for others. And that's what it means to boast in the cross. To boast in the cross is to be honest about who you are. And here's, here is what is true about every single one of us in this room it's not an either or. We are not divided in this room into either Dr. Jekylls or Mr. Hyde's. But the Christian gospel would say it's a both and. I am a sinner. And I'm loved. And that's the message of the cross. And that's, why, that's what Christianity is. God coming in Christ to save us. But lastly, and then we'll come to the, to the bulk of what we're going to do this morning. Lastly, what does Christianity do? And I want to focus just for a few more minutes on this phrase in Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what does count? But faith... Only faith working through love. Now let me do it this way again, just one more time. You see, Christianity isn't love but but with no faith. As irreligious people might claim, being in Christ requires faith. It's an objective truth. It's a set of moral absolutes that we must submit to. You have to believe the gospel, that God is holy, that His word is the law that we are judged by, therefore we are all sinners before Him, and our sin has made us liable to His justice, and that instead of paying us with that justice, Jesus Christ saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. Without those core theological truths, there is no spiritual power, and that is why. It's why the churches that have lost their theological core have at the same time lost their spiritual power. The churches that pride themselves on being inclusive of all people, irrespective of religion or sex or sexual orientation, these are the churches that almost without exception are, ironically, experiencing a steep decline in membership in our culture. Why? Because there's no spiritual power, and people want spiritual power. There's nothing Christian about them anymore. But I want you to hear me. Christianity isn't faith but no love either, as religious people too often assume. Faith isn't just a set of propositions that you have to agree with. It's also a faith that expresses itself in love, Paul says here. Not only believing the gospel, but also becoming the gospel. And this is this James passage in James 2 that Jeff read at the beginning of the service. What good is it if somebody says that they have faith but does not have works? He says a, a faith by itself without works is dead. So faith that doesn't result in a life of love and service to others. Becoming the gospel isn't real faith. If your Christianity isn't making you more patient with people, more loving, more forgiving, a better friend, more sacrificial and attentive to the needs of others, then what good is it if you know all the answers but you're grumpy and rude? That's not being supernaturally transformed. Believing the gospel always leads, always, to becoming the gospel. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 3, that I know Christ, I'm found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but then what happens is is I begin to begin to share in the resurrection power of his life. I begin to share in the sufferings of his death. My life begins to be shaped according to how his life was shaped. Because when you believe the gospel, the spirit that, that leads to that belief also leads to the becoming of the gospel. According to the Bible, the experience of being in Christ is a combination of a supernatural spiritual understanding of certain truths, and a personal, subjective, and transformative spiritual experience. Spiritual understanding and spiritual experience. Always both, never one or the other. Did I I need to say that again? Let me say it again. Being in Christ is a combination of a supernatural, spiritual understanding of certain truths and a personal, subjective, supernatural, and transformative spiritual experience. Always spiritual understanding and spiritual experience. Never just one. Now let me apply this as we get ready to come uh, to what we're going to do toward the end of our service here. I want you to see, if you look at your outline, those applications down there, I'm making a case ...for what we're doing this morning. One of the things that you'll notice is given what I've said... ...that when you look in the Gospels and see Jesus' ministry... ...you'll see that everywhere you find it... ...Jesus' ministry was always balanced. It was always a ministry of both word and deed. Given the things that I've said... ...if being in Christ is a a supernatural spiritual understanding of truth... ...spiritual understanding and also spiritual experience... ...then it makes sense that we shouldn't be surprised then... ...to find that Jesus' ministry was always word and deed. He preached the Gospel... And he healed the sick. Wherever the crowds caught up to him, and they were always on his heels, he would teach them, and he would care for them, care for their physical needs. Jesus' gospel was a message about the kingdom of heaven and how to be forgiven and reconciled to God, and then the demonstration of the kingdom's power to transform lives. Right? Proclamation and demonstration always went hand in hand, which means... My second application there for you is that the church then should minister in word and deed. We should be known. We should be a church that's known for robust theology and at the same time compassionate cultural engagement. See, faith energizing love means we should be a people who are growing in two directions, that we're growing in our knowledge and confidence in God's love for us in Christ Jesus, but then adding to our faith, as as Peter writes in his letter, adding to our faith self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly love and affection, that we should be growing in our belief in the gospel and then growing in the competencies for becoming the gospel. We should be learning, but not just information. We should be learning and then being transformed by what we're learning into a life of service and love for others. Never one without the other, not just faith, not just theological education. If you know a bunch of stuff, but it's all not making any difference in your life, what's the point, Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have not all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love. Nothing. But anti-intellectualism isn't the goal either. Let's Let's don't worry about theology, they would say. Let's just worry about loving one another. Well, that doesn't do either, because love is energized by faith. If you cut out the theology, you're cutting yourself off from the power source to do the very thing you want to do. So there are denominations, there are brands of churches that are known for robust theologically, the, theology, but unfortunately what happens a lot of times is they're reclusive, they become sectarian, they choose faith over love, they choose theological orthodoxy over cultural engagement, and what happens is, is their faith is not transformative, it doesn't change anything around them. And so it shouldn't be surprising that over time, most times what happens is these denominations and brands become religious and almost no longer Christian. Then there are the denomination and brands of churches that are more known for compassionate cultural engagement, but the assumption of most of them is that in order to engage the culture, you have to leave your theological convictions behind they It's their goal they become theological jellyfish. And they choose love over faith, but their love is not transformative it may do they may you know They're known typically for doing some pretty good things in the community. They run soup kitchens and whatnot, but there is very little spiritual power. The lives of the people in the churches aren't being transformed, and so it shouldn't be surprising either here that over time, these groups tend to become irreligious and almost barely Christian. But if circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything, but only faith working through love, that means that we should strive in this church to be a people who are known for being committed to both strong theological orthodoxy and compassionate cultural engagement at the same time. Faith, energizing love. I'm start, see this, Do you see the case I'm making? And therefore, the offices of elder and deacon maintain the church's ministry and word and deed. That's why we have both. It's why we need both. To help keep this balance, Jesus has graciously given us both elders and deacons to lead us. So where you see a church, and it's interesting, I thought about this week, this week. Where you see a church losing its way and kind of teetering to one side or the other, it's often because of, of a, a bad polity structure in the church, of, of a faulty leadership structure. Either the churches, uh, they don't have deacons and elders both. They only have deacons and no elders. Or uh, they confuse the role of elder and deacon Or there are churches that simply just don't follow what we believe, you know, we would say that, you know, that there are biblical instructions as to the qualifications for elders and deacons. And we wrongly, we wrongly ordain men that we shouldn't, whatever the case may be. Wherever you see there's not a balance, it's because we've not gotten this right. These two offices are meant to function to keep this balance between word and deed at the center of the church's life. So elders lead the church in the ministry of the word because the distinguishing mark of Christ's church is powerful theological orthodoxy that is transformative in people's lives. And that's the work of the elder. But deacons lead the church in the ministry of deed because the distinguishing mark of Christ's church is also powerful generosity and mercy to the poor and the needy, both in the church and in the community. And that word deacon means servant, but don't think that means that the job description of a deacon is just to make sure the chairs are set out whenever we need something set up around here. They lead us on mission to engage the physical needs of our city with the hope of the gospel. They are our captains in the conflict to see that the good news is proclaimed to the poor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We need the leadership of these men To help us maintain our bearings as we journey into the kingdom of heaven together. And for that reason, I am grateful to God for how generous he's been to us in providing such men to lead us. But even as we celebrate them today, even as we pledge our support and obedience to them, as we commission them to their work, let's not forget where our real hope lies. It is not with these men that we ordain, it's not with me or Jeff or Jonathan or any of the pastors of this church, but it is with those that we represent, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus faithfully rules over us as his people, subduing our hearts to himself and winning our obedience to him by his powerful love. Our hope is not with these men we ordain and install as deacons today, but the true deacon, our Savior, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we do this now in just a minute, look beyond these these men to him today, who continues to rule and reign through his word in the world, And who also serves the world through his body. It's to him we look. It's to him we give thanks. Let's pray together this morning as we come to the rest of our service. Father, we thank you for uh, these words from the Apostle Paul that so clearly distinguish for us what Christianity is and what it isn't. We thank you. Father, for, um, for your word that is gracious to us, that teaches us uh, what we need to know about these things. And we pray, Father, that as we um, ordain these men together this morning, that you would continue to work by your spirit in our church, that you would find us faithful, uh, that you would continue to bless us, that we might be a blessing, um, that you would continue, Father, to move among us, to raise up leaders, Uh, that we might continue to uh, multiply the ministry that we desire to see in our city take place. Father, thank you for um, so graciously providing for us in this. We ask, even now as we sing and celebrate your gospel yet again, that you would come and continue to do this work among us, that we might bear fruit in the city that you've called us to for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I want to read a couple of scriptures to you. I can get all this right. If you're working with Drew all this time, I'd be used to short people, but I'm still not used to it. Um, that's right. Obligatory short joke. Let me read you a couple of passages, a couple of verses, actually, uh, first from Acts 20, uh, and I'm going to do the elders first, okay, and then the deacons, two separate charges, because the work is different. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then from 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed So don't think that you're exempt from serving, even though the name of a deacon means a servant. But you're still serving, you're just serving by leading. And so, primarily from Acts 20, I would charge you first to pay careful attention to yourselves. Uh, I would charge you to make sure you aren't neglecting the means of God's appointment to help you do this. His word, His people, prayer. Because if you're not paying careful attention to the soil of your own heart and life... As you know, weeds and unwanted things will grow. Uh, As those who shepherd and rule, elders must do so from a place of constant tending to their own hearts, paying close attention to themselves. Peter says, we do this as examples to the flock. And so what would you want the people under your care to be doing? Model that for them. It will be impossible to care for the souls under your care while neglecting your own, right? So read the Bible every day. Worship with God's people every week. Do life together in a community group. Those are kind of duh things that we talk about all the time. And yet, and yet, as you know, sometimes hard to take advantage of. Take advantage of those ways God has made available to carefully attend to yourself. Those are the fuel sources for shepherding. As Peter says, willingly And eagerly, and so I would charge you to not only be willing to do this office, but to do it eagerly. Eagerly. I can't wait to get up in the morning and go do this work. Do you feel that way? I would charge you to wrestle your heart toward that if you're not already. But secondly, Paul says, Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Uh, and so as the old hymn goes, uh, with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. This is a, th- this is a significant uh, group that Jesus has given his life for. With all her warts, with all her screw-ups, he loves her. And he charges us to care for her. Listen to the way Paul says he went about caring for the church of Thessalonica He says, we were eager to not just share the gospel with you, but to share our very selves, right? And you can't share the gospel without sharing yourself. Look at Jesus. He didn't just walk around dispensing truth and teaching. He wasn't just a rabbi, just an instructor. He was a friend. He was a brother. He was a son. He related to those who were hurting. He interrupted his schedule to ask, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? One way to know if you're sharing your life is to ask yourself, am I affectionately desirous of the people I've been called to shepherd or to tend to or to watch over? Are they very dear to you? Because that's what Paul says about the church of Thessalonica. We were affectionately desirous of you because you were very near and dear to us. He says we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. And so I would charge you to be soft, to be tender, to be affectionate. To be like Messiah, not not snuffing out smoldering wicks, not breaking easily bruised reeds, but being soft and affectionate. But he says, not only that, he says, we were like a father among you. We exhorted you. We encouraged you. We charged you. And so there's work to be done to confront and to challenge and exhort people with the truth. Encourage them. Charge them to battle sin and unbelief. See one without the other produces imbalance and mushiness. You need both. You've got to be motherly as crazy as that sounds. Well, for me it's crazy to think about. But God does produce motherliness in all of us and fatherliness in all of us as his shepherds and the calls to be both because different situations as you know require different things. Uh, to the deacons, Brian and, uh, and Steve, you lead by serving, right? These guys serve by leading. You lead by serving. And as you lead the church to love through deeds and to call her to, as the book of church order says, develop the grace of liberality, I would charge you to do your work in two ways. First, hold up the gospel mirror. That is, follow the pattern of the great deacon. Remember the guy who wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the feet of the guys who would not stand up when the time came for him. They would run. But he he got on his hands and knees and washed their feet. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you get out and you wash feet. And so care and serve, even if it means to your own hurt, when you, when you forget that Jesus was among his disciples like this, then you'll be tempted to stop serving and start demanding, right? Don't forget, the way that Jesus served you by laying down his life for you will be the very way you empower, you are empowered to carry on and not shrink back from the work of deaconing. But secondly, you've got to be utterly dependent on God's wisdom, As you already have heard and know, the discernment required in handling money and the responsibility of distributing it is immense, right? The issues that are faced in mercy ministry are often some of the most complex we face in the church because there's a tightrope between generosity and responsibility. There's always a tyranny of the urgent. And without wisdom, you fall prey to being used and abused on the one hand or rarely helping anyone out of fear of getting abused on the other hand. And so as you minister to the needy among us, I charge you to do so prayerfully and humbly because these are the people who are sick, who are friendless, who are lonely, who are distressed. And as you lead the church in caring for the property God has entrusted to us, do so in a way that leads everyone, both adults and children, to honor the goods that we've been given to manage on the behalf of God who gave them to us, especially these windows. very important to me, these windows. That's kind of a joke, but they're uh, beautiful, aren't but they're beautiful, aren't they? You're called to lead us to look after orphans and widows in their affliction, and to know when and how and how long to do that requires extraordinary wisdom. And so I charge you, pursue the place to get wisdom, which is the Scriptures. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so I'd exhort you, live in the fear and awe and worship of the Lord. Make sure, similar to these guys, Make sure CBR and prayer are daily habits like brushing your teeth or taking a shower because as a result, we're told that a growing fear of the Lord will produce a growing wisdom and we desperately need that in our work. Amen.
2: You think as long as I've been around prideful tall people. If you've you've been around our church very long at all, you know we place a lot of emphasis on the providence of God. We believe that he moves sovereignly and actively in the lives of his people to work out his perfect will. So today as we ordain these six men for the offices of elder and deacon, we do so trusting that this is the will of God, not only for these men, but for our church as well. They were first nominated, Drew mentioned this earlier, they were first nominated by the church body they prepared and studied for a year, they were examined by our session, and finally they were affirmed by a vote of the church. So this morning, as these men are ordained, we believe strongly that God has been at work in their lives and in the life of our church to work out his will. They are God's provision to Redeemer. her. So, that, so if that's the case, and we believe it is, how should we respond? What is your responsibility to these men? There's one verse I want to look at, it's Hebrews 13, chapter chapter 13, verse 17, and here's what the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The author of this book is wrapping up this letter to the church there in, in Jerusalem, that he dearly loved and he has no idea whether he would ever see these folks again. So he leaves them with these exhortations. He he knows they're going to face trials and persecution and he wants to be sure that they're able to persevere and remain faithful to the gospel. So he gives them these exhortations like the one we find in verse 17. And here's the instruction in verse 17. Obey and submit to the leaders. Who are charged with keeping watch over your souls. He goes on, and this is an interesting part of this verse, really. He says, If the leaders can't do their jobs joyfully, there will be no advantage to the people. Another way to say this is is like this if the leaders can fulfill their duties with joy, there will be an advantage, a benefit to all of you. Now, if we look at the theme of the book of Hebrews, we can probably assume that the benefit that the author is talking about is to help the church and its members to persevere and grow in their faith in the, in the face of persecution. And I think that's probably as true today as it ever has been, at least it is for me. I need help growing and persevering in my faith. So how can we help our leaders, and these men in particular, lead with joy and without groaning? See, I guess the writer is saying something like this. How can you not be that person that makes the leader groan when he sees you coming? That's my translation of this anyway. This mic is driving me crazy. Rather, how can we make their jobs downright joyful so that the work they do can be a, a benefit to all of us? I want to give you just a few practical ways that you can support these men in their roles as elders and deacons. So this is your challenge. This is your charge. First, give them your trust. Now, in working with these men and knowing them and hearing their hearts for ministry, I'm certain that they're going to do everything they can to earn your trust. Give it to them before they earn it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Let them know you're excited for them to lead. And joyfully submit to their leadership. Give them your trust. Next, be patient with them. They're still learning. All of us are. They're gonna mess up, they're gonna disappoint you. They may even forget your name or think this is your first Sunday when you've been here for six months. That's my personal sin. They are not perfect. I mean, look at them, they're not. In short, they're sinners, just like you are, just like I am. The ordination service that we just went through does not cause them to cease to being sinners and move on to some higher plane in life. At least it didn't in my case, as those around me can testify. So be patient. Give them some space to learn and to grow. Third, encourage them. Let them know how much you appreciate what they're doing. Invite them into your home. Get to know them. Get to know their families. Some days this job is hard, and the thing that they're going to need more than anything else is encouragement. So freely give it to them. Be an encouragement to them. Fourth, pray for them. The task before them is a daunting one and often weighty, and it has eternal significance. Our verse, you remember that? It says that these leaders will have to give an account one day as to how they've kept watch over your souls. It's pretty sobering. So pray for these men and their families. And finally, receive them as a gift to the church and to you. As I said earlier, we believe that they are God's provision to us all. So receive this gift joyfully. Let them know you're for them. Cheer them on. And if you do that, they will in turn be able to lead joyfully And in doing that, these men will be a great advantage to you in your faith journey. God bless you.
0: Amen. Thank you, men, for doing that. Uh, And so I would just say to you, I can't wait to get to work with all of you. Uh, You guys are a joy. Congregation, you are a joy to serve. You do a great job of what Terry just called you to, so thank you for that as well. And so let's pray, and as uh, the the band comes to lead us in our closing song, uh, if you would just join me in prayer so we can wrap this up. Father, thank you for the promise of uh, the purchase of your son's death for us, which is the Holy Spirit. And so I do pray for me and for uh, the elders and deacons that, that, that have been serving this church and for these new uh, brothers to serve alongside of us, that we would be men, as we've already said, full of the Holy Spirit. In humility and meekness, but also courage and strength, that we would be faithful in the charge that you've given to us, that we would stand before you on the day of judgment uh, with clear consciences for the way that we have gone about the work that you've called us to. But I pray for this congregation as well, that you would give to them the spirit that they might uh, do the work that Terry just called them to as well, so that we might get after evil in our city. That, we not, that there may not be compativeness among us, but that we may be unified because of what we're up against that you've called us to go after in our city and in our world. Unite us by the Spirit with one another, that we might make a united front, uh, that we might see the kingdom of God come and your will be done in our, in our town as it is in heaven. That's our hope and prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we journey to the land that he has promised, our heavenly home, he promises to go with us. And to give us everything that we need. But if the key to that spiritual power is what we talked about this morning. If you're here and your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in him. But if you're here and you're just a, somebody who would just say. Well I'm a kind of a religious person. But there's no power in my life. Repent of your righteousness and turn to him in faith. Because that is, that is where the power comes. Make his cross your boast. And he will be with you to give you everything you need throughout your journey's Uh, to, to your journey's end. So receive the promise of this benediction because it's just that. Men, receive this promise of this benediction as you go into your work. But church, as he calls us into the city that he's called us to, receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.